0: Welcome to the LTAD Network Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Anderson, and on this podcast, we seek out the world's best researchers, coaches, support staff, teachers, and athletes to better understand the process of long term athlete development. Don't forget to get your seven day free trial to our online platform and 50% off your first month with the code LTADVIP50. That's LTADVIP50 at the LTAD Network Hub website. This podcast episode is sponsored by Statera. Statera is a web based application that helps youth athletes and their stakeholders estimate training load, track maturation status, monitor readiness, and manage injury. Put together by coaches working with busy youth athletes, Statera helps keep things simple and brings together the most important training information in one place to ensure that effective athlete-centered decisions can be made. No more complicated Excel tutorials and spreadsheets, just upload your athletes' data and their training schedule and start to take control of their training commitments and workload. Make more informed decisions and protect your athletes' well-being, supporting their performance. Statera takes your data very seriously. GDPR compliant and registered with the ICO, choose from a range of maturation indices and validated measures, or customize your own. Statera can record any training variable and all your data is fully exportable. To reach out today and get a free walkthrough, head over to www.statera.uk. That's S-T-A-T-E-R-A dot U-K. Lee Taft is known to most simply as the speed guy. He's highly respected as one of the top athletic movement specialists in the world. In the last 30 years, Lee has devoted the majority of his time training multi-directional speed to all ages and abilities. He's spent much of this time teaching his multi-directional speed methods to top performance coaches and fitness professionals all over the world. Lee has also dedicated countless hours mentoring up-and-coming sports performance trainers, many of whom have gone into the profession and made a big impact themselves.
1: Okay, so it's great uh, to welcome Lee Taft back to the LTAD Network tonight for a discussion that we've titled Reimagining Youth Sport. If anyone's been following Lee, over the past few weeks he's really posted a lot of thought-provoking messages around youth sport, the challenges and problems that there are with the current model and possible solutions and uh, better ways that this can be structured. So I'm really looking forward to this discussion, Lee. Um, yeah, thank you for likewise. taking out to join us.
2: Uh, thank you. No, I was really excited when you uh, introduced me to doing this with you and the topic and all. And it's just, it's too, it's too important to ignore. And I think the more noise we can make, we can make those who really want to listen, that
1: they'll, they'll uh, maybe change their minds a little bit. Yeah, even if it just inspires some parents to take action and do something a little bit different, even if it's just for a small group of kids, then to me it's a positive uh, investment exactly. of, of our time of an evening to, uh, to have this discussion. So exactly, I, th- I, think the, I think the best place for us to start is, we'll start with the question, what are the problems that you see with the current model of youth sport?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, that's a great place to start because there is so many directions we can go. And I'm sure we will, as we go through our talk today. Um, So the the current model right now, basically, especially here in, in the States is very much oriented around kind of this elite model. So if you pay to play, we can make you elite and we can do that many different ways. We can Put you in these high-end tournaments we yeah. can get you to travel out of state uh we can get you um maybe sponsored by some of the top shoe companies uh all these different things get put into the parents and these young kids minds and here's the funny thing james we're not just talking about you know 16 17 year old kids we're talking about eight 9 10 year old kids that are being sold wow. this dream and i just literally last week or two weeks ago just saw it, I saw the exact thing happening at a local basketball tournament where these little kids are being screamed at during games by by parents that are the coach and have no idea of what they're talking about or how to work with young kids. So the model right now is built around, uh, can we get you a scholarship? Can we get you to the professional level? Can we, you know, make you become a highly recruitable athlete? And we've forgotten about just sampling and exposure to the sport. Let the kid grow themselves into the sport and we'll know if they want to go further. You'll just see it. They'll, they'll yeah. start to develop a passion for it. And the model right now is set up where it actually discourages that with young kids. And the message that I want parents, especially, because parents are the ones that have the final control. I don't care who the coach is. They don't have control over that kid if the parent says no, they're not gonna do it. So the parents have to understand there's too many things that can go wrong for for those scholarships or those top dreams to happen when we know that probably 1% of these kids are gonna get a scholarship, 1%. And all these parents that have kids that really don't have a heck of a lot of athleticism are paying five, six, $7,000 a season for their kids to play in a sport. And the kids aren't even, haven't even gone through puberty yet. They haven't even figured out if they want to do it. So that's the main problem I'm seeing. Plus, you know, a a bunch of other things.
1: Yeah. I think with the parents as well, in, in, in my experience, particularly, probably in a little bit of an older age group than what we're talking about there in terms of eight, nine and 10 year olds, but you also have that um, as they get older, the parents are almost a high performance manager without being equipped with the skills to manage that or the knowledge to manage that. And they, I've seen kids with talent get pulled from pillar to post to play on this team and that team And in the end, it's the undoing of them because they break under the training load or, you know, they they have multiple injuries that they struggle to get back from and they miss huge periods of their development. Is that something that you see as well with this model in the U.S.?
2: Yes, that is absolutely huge. We see parents uh, here, they'll call it daddy ball. okay, and it could be a mom that's doing it, but they call it daddy ball. The, The dad gets mad because their child's not getting playing time. So they go start their own team and then yeah. they get kids, and then it becomes this, it just becomes this parent-driven competitive model, because if you ask most young kids, they want to play. Most yeah. parents want to win, right? They're they're, yeah. they're overly competitive, and they want, yeah. you know, they don't want to be, they don't want to look bad, like they can't coach, and they can't do this, so they'll yeah. do things that are against development, like proper development, and I always like to call it, James, I like to call it the greater good of youth sports. Most parents, they don't have the knowledge nor the background nor nor the experience to understand what the greater good means. And so they fall short in delivering a developmentally sound program, not just for skill development and tactical learning and, and competing, but for social development, for problem solving, for uh, uh, being a good teammate, for understanding what a loss and a win really means in the grand scheme of things. Because it, 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 you, you could play an unbelievable game and still get beat or play a terrible game and still win. And if our mindset is wrong, we're looking at the win and loss versus saying, did the kids have fun? Did they lose because they were tired and, they, you know, they played five games this weekend and they're just tired. So parents don't understand the greater good and therefore they fall short of actually mentoring or coaching these kids the right way.
1: Yeah, sure. I think you mentioned some really important points there in terms of that holistic development beyond technical, tactical, beyond the physical, the, you know, that the social, psychological development that can come from youth sport is fantastic. Yeah how if there's a parent that listens back to this how do they go about fostering an environment that develops some of those things what does that environment look like to you
2: yeah yeah so so first of all the the one thing you want to allow with the the younger kids especially especially you know prepubescent kids or even up until 14 you know 15 years old or as old as they want really is don't take away. The number of sports they want to play, that'll organically happen. All of a sudden, you know, when they get older, schedules will just start to conflict and and they're going to have to decide, well, do I want to do I want to play soccer or do I want to play lacrosse? You know, as when they're younger, they might be able to do both. So allow sampling to be a major, major part of their development because of all the, all the ancillary things that come with that. There's so many positive things to sampling different sports. Uh, you know, Number one, playing for different coaches, getting a different style, playing, getting different friends and learning different rules, different pace of play, just develop so many good things. But the other thing is, is make sure whether it's it's actually planned out on a calendar or whatever, but when they're young, get them in sports that may last, you know, two months to three months and then switch to the next sport and let them play that one and then do it again. And, you know, depending on, depending on how long the year is, they might be able to play five sports because they could play an an early fall and then kind of a fall winter sport, maybe like a swimming or something like that. And then maybe a basketball or wrestling. And then, you know, maybe they want to play a softball or lacrosse or, tennis or soccer and then maybe they want to play like a flag football here in the states is real big or a ultimate frisbee you know yeah. so give them the opportunity to sample and the best piece of advice i can get now if you're a parent that has been asked to volunteer as a coach go ahead and and learn how to coach and do that but if not your best most important job is to be the chauffeur that gets them to the activity and then brings them back and then just tells them how much they love watching them play and how fun it looked like out there and let the kid start the conversation. Cause if they say like, James, if I were your, your child, and I said, dad, you, you saw me play. What, how come I wasn't catching the ball right? And you say, well, you know, Lee, I, I think you got to keep your eye on the ball. Look like a couple of times you turned your head. Like you were afraid to, get, to keep your eye on it and maybe we can practice in the backyard if you want. Now, all of a sudden, you become an ally rather than an enemy. But if you're barking yeah. at them and instructing them when they don't want it, now you're the enemy. And that's when it all starts to fall apart.
1: Yeah, I think that's one of the things I really struggle with. At, at, you know, youth sport fixtures that I've been at over the past decade or so as a, as a, as a PE teacher, particularly back in England. Some of the The ferociousness of the feedback from parents on the sideline or or coaches of specific teams and it's just and then they wonder why that the kid doesn't want to play or the kid (laughs) doesn't want to come back and represent the the school and they've got dwindling numbers by the time they get back get to 15 or 16 it's like it's no surprise when that's the environment created by the adults really is it
2: yeah yeah no not at all and and if if you and I could talk about strength and conditioning, we would talk quite a bit about controlling intensity and volume and density and, and how much exposure and rest and all this. Well, sports is the same way. And the psychology of sports is even more so like that. So if if a young 8, 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old is constantly getting a high volume of criticism that becomes extremely fatiguing, but it's a mental fatigue. It's an emotional fatigue. And then all of a sudden they start to say, I, I just, I don't want to do it anymore. I just can't. And here's the problem. If you and I were friends and you said, you know, Lee, you stink. You can't play. I'd say, James, you stink. You can't play. You know, we'd go back and forth and banter. And then we would go hang out the rest of the day. Right. Cause we're peers. We're friends. Yeah. But when your mom or your dad does it, the people you respect the most and you try to honor their their wishes and their thoughts, that's a heavy load on a kid. OK. And then if they become disrespectful, that's a red flag right there. It's like why all of a sudden are they like the scared dog that you have backed in a corner that bites back at you? That's not that's a really dangerous dynamic going on. So you're putting that child in the position of having to protect themselves and fight back against those they love. But the other part is when the parents are getting on the kid about doing certain things a certain way, but the coach is actually supporting the kid doing it the way they're doing it, now the child's stuck in between. And you talk about pressure, that's a lot of pressure because they don't want to disappoint their parents. And they certainly don't want to be, you know, called out by the coach for not doing what they ask. So now the parents have put the kid in a, in a position they just can't win. And then they, the best way for them, I'm not going to play anymore. Now I don't have to deal with that. So yeah. that's a shame.
1: Yeah. They withdraw completely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just going back a couple of steps, you mentioned like playing two or three months worth of sport and then rotating. And you mentioned quite a few different sports within there. You know, you had some individual sports. You had sports that were more throwing and catching based, some that were striking and fielding based. Would you have a purposeful rotation around those activities at those younger age groups to develop all of those skills? Would that be your thinking and approach that they can then choose later?
2: Yeah, I I definitely, because I, like you, as a phys ed background and we try to, expose the the students to you know all the different um skill sets right we want them to be able to throw and catch and field and kick and and trap and control and all that stuff and so when you put athletes and so let's take uh um let's take a sport like maybe uh field hockey and a sport like tennis okay they're both implement driven but their rules are completely different. The way they strike and swing and and, um, move to to strike the ball and hit the ball or defend uh, way different, but they're still working on a similar patterning. Uh, Now, if we go soccer and lacrosse, very similar spatial awareness and and separation of teammates and, and defending in a ways, but very different in how we attempt to score and and because of the skill sets. And then we start going to sports like basketball and maybe like a team handball or a football, American football, where now it's very much hand-eye coordination and, and manipulation of the body while still controlling the ball to stay within the rules. So when you do that for a child, what you do is you bolster their overall ability to be able to manage their bodies, make quick decisions, but use their hands, their body and their feet to make plays. And even though each sport has differences, the similarities greatly overwhelm the fact that they have differences, right? Just the fact that I've got to be able to work, yeah. And then we can start going into sports like swimming, uh, badminton, um, uh, racquetball, things that's more individual based to To an extent, and um, but still, starting to develop some of that upper body and that shoulder control that we that we uh, may want the young kids to develop. Yeah, so I think it's a fantastic seamless approach.
1: Yeah, I think I I had uh, just reflecting on some of my own experiences with sport, and I I ended up playing rugby to a a, a, a fairly good level um, within like the national leagues and in, in in the UK, but not top level, three or four tiers down. Yeah. But there was, I didn't pick up rugby until I was 15, really. Like that was when I really wanted to play the game. Like yep. you said, I was, I was playing loads of different sports, football, soccer, I was skiing, I was playing basketball yep. in my back garden. And actually like when it came to rugby, the, it, it was like a, an amalgamation of many things that I'd done yep. over the years. It was that the handling skills that I'd learned in basketball I could throw round-the-back passes because I'd been doing them in basketball. Yep. I could kick the ball well because I'd done soccer for, for years. But one of the things which I, I, I found in that sport, particularly a contact-based sport that stood me in great stead, was judo.
0: Yeah. So I learned yeah.
1: judo, and, I, and, and it was like this awareness of people's body pressure on you in contact and being able to find... Yep weaknesses in, in those contact situations. So it's, it was a really interesting point for me where all these skills had kind of come together. I very much had a a, a a youth sport background where I was exposed to many things. I was lucky that my parents gave me lots of opportunities to do that. So yes, yeah, it's, yeah. it's interesting how it all comes together, eventually. But I, th- I don't Jim- know about you, I've definitely seen um, I've seen the other side as well with with working with youth sports and even, you know, among my friends, those people that were specialized and only did one sport. Yep. You know, that, what, what have you seen on that side in terms of the kids that go through that? What do you think is the negative, the real negatives of that sport specialization?
2: Right, yeah, so, and, and I've seen it as well. I've seen it in many, I, long time ago when I had my speed academies back in the, even the earlier 90s, yeah. I had like figure skaters, gymnasts yeah. that specialized. I've had I've had motocross athletes that specialized from a young age and that's all they did. Is they just did that kind of extreme sport but it was more motocross type. So the, yeah. the here's here's the thing. We know anything you do if you do it repeatedly over and over you will become better at that. That's 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 the given. We know that. Okay? But when we start talking about development and and the the short span of a young person's mind, where yeah, that's all they want to do when they're nine years old, but when they're nine and a half, they don't want to do it anymore. They want to, yeah. you know, six months can be like that for getting in the switches. So the negative of the sport specialization. Okay, so now we start looking at the limited exposure to different movements as we've already covered, okay? That that helps athletes even in their chosen sport. So if I wanna be a figure skater, but I end up even playing hockey or I play, like I do, I pick up a martial arts as an activity, even if it's not an organized sport, but I I do martial arts a few times a week and I learn pressure control, like you said, and, and movement. That's fantastic for them. I had a big gymnastics background. I, my dad was very big in, in phys ed. And so I learned a lot of that. And that helped me in all my sports. So we we have that. They If they specialize, they miss those opportunities. They increase the risk of certain types of injuries just because the pattern keeps being repeated over and over and over. And it's happening at young Uh, vital stages when tissues and joints and bones and everything are still developing. And then, of course, we have the mental part, the, the mental burnout, the social part of it. If you're with the same kids all the way up for six, seven, eight, nine years, you kind of miss the social diversity of being with different people and being coached differently. So there's a list of things that we could go through. But that's the problem when you specialize is it just doesn't give the, the physical, the emotional, the social, and the cooperative development tools that young kids need to to be a uh, actually a better athlete in their chosen sport than if they just specialize. I truly believe that.
1: And what about once they get past the period where they are a sports person? What about the active life beyond it? What? Yeah. Yeah. That, that, for me, is something which, you know, I see... I've seen people who then struggle to pick up other activities outside of their main sport. I know guys that are still, still playing rugby into their forties. They've got, and their bodies are destroyed, but it's like, they could have picked up, you could have picked up golf club and and probably walked through your sixties and seventies. But yeah, I think, I think that's one of the things that I see is like the longer term impact, like how they can, Can they maintain an active lifestyle when that sport is gone? You know, when it, when, when it isn't physically possible to do some of these sports, I think that's another, another thing. Like I, I, I always think in the pathways that I've worked in, I want these kids to have a real broad set of movement skills that enable them to pick up any activity that they want at any stage. They could transfer into another sport at 18. And even if they don't make it to elite, they can go and enjoy it because they have all the movement skills attached to agility and change of direction. And they can, yep. they can just do those things. And it's interesting you say the gymnasts, because one of the things I saw uh, working in the school in the UK was we had three or four gymnasts that were very, very good gymnasts, competed on a national level, uh, did very well representing the school and their clubs. But it was really interesting, like we used to play generic ball skill games, just yeah. you know, make 10 passes and keep the ball between yeah. your team. And these girls really struggled with it. And then they really began to withdraw from yeah. that activity. And if it wasn't something that they were good at, they, they didn't want to be involved. And they, we're talking about 12, 13-year-old girls. And I, I oh, said no. to them, like, look, this is something we want to help you develop because this is going to help you when maybe you stop gymnastics at 16, 17 or 18, but you could go and pick up a netball. You could go and pick up yep. a football, something else. And I think we have to have that, like you say, that wide, the wide lens that sometimes the, the kids and the parents don't have to try and in, encourage that. And even if it's just picking up, a, you know, integrating a different set of skills to the sport, yep. like, you know, football. You, you play football or soccer in the UK, but you can, uh, soc- soccer in America, let's get it the right yeah. way around, soccer in America, <laughs> football in the UK, Yeah. You do, some, you do some warm-up activities with the ball in your hands, or you get a chance to play goalkeeper or something like that. I think they're important little things that are easy, easy to implement, but potentially very impactful um, down the yep. line.
2: Oh, 100%. And that's, that's the thing. So I was very fortunate. I played four sports in high school, and then I played two sports in college. And to this day, I can still play sports like I, I played in tournaments for badminton. I played racquetball. I yeah. skied like you did. I, I played all the ball sports. Uh, I, I learned very well how to play uh, volleyball. Um, And it was simply because when I was little, we did all those things, we just got exposure to it. And you you start to understand things like pace and touch and feel and and tracking and, and all these little things that get developed, as you said, if you play a sport, if you were only a wrestler, only a gymnast. Um, you know, sports of that, you, you don't understand what it means to lead someone with a pass, to push the ball out in front of them, whether it be a, uh, you know, a, a football uh, kick or a, you know, basketball pass or an f- American football pass, throw in front to a spot you think they're going to go. Those are skills That kids don't get exposed to if they only play one sport that doesn't have that particular skill set involved in it. And now, as a dad or as a mom, I can teach my kids pretty much any sport simply because I've had such a great sampling experience when I was a kid. And to me, going back to your question of, you know, once you're an adult, you know, how does it affect you? I think that's the saddest part. When you have a mom or a dad that can't even play catch with their kid, because they can't catch and they don't even know how to throw and what their little kids do they watch they mimic and they they watch your modeling and if you don't know how to throw well well they're probably not going to learn unless they get a coach that teaches them so i think that's part of it is we have to make sure take care of ourselves as we age make sure we sample a lot and we have a better body because of it but also At some point, you're going to be your child's first coach, whether you want to be or not. When they're three, four years old, they don't—they're not on a team, but they want to learn how to swing a plastic bat and hit a ball off a tee. You're the one that's going to have to show them how to hold it and and how to swing.
1: Yeah, for sure. So, another question. We're moving on. Uh, We've talked about the problems of the current model, and I know this is an area that we touched on when we were discussing this beforehand, but. What is the impact of the current model on families, their finances, and time commitments?
2: Yeah, yeah. And so, James, this question could could very well be the most important question at all when we start talking about family dynamics. Youth sports has changed how families interact with one another, how they allocate their income. Um, uh, who chooses to go and who chooses to stay if you have multiple kids. So we now are starting to see, and there's there's some research out there that says about 77% of families are readjusting their income so that they can afford to pay for youth sports. To me, that's sad. That's very, very sad. And it's not that as parents, we wanna give our child a chance to be involved what we have to understand is you're teaching them a really dangerous lesson that the only way you can have fun and be involved and achieve is to throw a lot of money at it. And that's not, that should not be the case with young kids. Once they get up into high school and they're, you know, maybe they want to go play at North Carolina, you know, and and they want to go to the North Carolina summer camp. So they're around that coaching staff and it costs $500. Okay. I'm fine with that. That's that's a very directed object, but this is with an older kid. But with younger kids, we're seeing financial distress. We're seeing husbands and wives spending the weekends and nights away from each other for months on end. Because some of these travel teams play every weekend for three, four, five months. And wow. so you got moms and dads in, in different states and different you know bedrooms and all, all these all these months. The other part that is extremely sad to me is, is I, I spoke with a, a gentleman who actually wrote an article that was one of the most highly read articles on youth sports. And he had uh, emails sent to him and he said, he had grandparents saying, we no longer have access to our grandchildren because Sundays used to be our day. They came over for family dinner and we hung out and you know, and did games and stuff with them. That doesn't happen anymore uh, because the kids are choosing. And then if the grandparents try to go to these events, it's too long. They can't sit there all the time. The noise bothers them, uh, not to mention the expense of it. And if they don't go, they don't get to see their kids. If they do go, it's just a very stressful time. So when we start looking at all of those issues, we start realizing the families are actually being kind of pulled apart by the youth sports when when moms and dads are saying well yeah but that's the sacrifice we're willing to make for a kid well if you understand the skill set you want your child to have the opportunity to become better at the sport the potential to get a scholarship can be gained a much better more healthy organic way and probably even better than what you're currently doing because of the high level of uh, fatigue and breakdown if they would just realize that, then they could actually have their family life back, and that to me is just as important as anything else. You know, make sure the families aren't away from each other during this critical
1: time. Yeah, yeah, some really, really good points there. So I think, you know, this dream of pro sport, or you know, uh, families particularly in the US chasing scholarships and, and those kind of things. What could they? What could they be doing to achieve that goal without this crazy investment? And what what would the, what things would you be doing now? I know. I think your your daughter's played college basketball. If I'm yep. if I'm right, yep. yep. But they. It looks from what I've seen you share over the years. It looks like they had a a great time uh, playing sport, and I know they did a lot of stuff with you in terms of physical development. What things could other parents be doing to help the kids get there that don't involve all of the crazy travel ball scenario and money and time away?
2: Yeah, yeah. So first of all, we'll just a quick review. Make sure they get the opportunity to play multiple sports because then when they're in the one sport that they really, truly love, they're excited about it because, yes, I'm back to my sport. I had a season of you know playing an outdoor sport. Now I get to get back in the gym or I was in the gym. Now I get to get out on the track. And that's my true love. So you actually keep them excited and they play at a higher intensity and higher level because they had some time away. Right. Uh, You know, what's the saying there, uh, you know, separation helps us grow fonder of it. Right. So get them separated from a little bit. They'll love it when they come back. So that's number one. Number two, make sure that they develop the skill sets that are going to make them better in those sports. So Almost every sport, with the exception of those that don't involve running, getting faster will always raise your level in that sport. So if I'm faster to the ball or to the puck or to the basket, or I can defend more shots on goal, if I'm faster and quicker, that's going to raise it. So spend some time on just basic sprinting. I I advise sprint twice a week, sprint hard, do it quick get out of it and you'll see success with that. So if they develop them athletically in a very nice uh, three day a week type of program with strength training, a couple days a week of sprinting, do some jumping in there if they're not already jumping, just get them to be a better athlete. That's gonna raise their level. The third part is make sure that their skill is raising. So make sure they have the ability to catch to kick a ball to trap it to to manage and manipulate the ball make sure they can dribble or whatever the sport is raise that level of skill but do so in a fun and competitive manner there's so many ways you and i know this because we were teachers you can make a boring little simple drill really fun just by adding some fun bells and whistles to it that keep them encouraged to do it so if we raise that level that's good then the fourth part is make sure they get exposed to tactical learning so yeah. small sided games if you and i and jordan played 3 on 3 soccer and we used one cone as the goal so you actually had to hit the goal yeah. with the ball you had to hit that cone you score but we you know we we were all three were against each other we didn't have teams it was you me and jordan against each other we had to learn how to dribble. That's a great way to learn how to create movement and separation. Then we add a teammate in there. Now we learn how to pass and move and cut. So when kids are learning those things and small sided, fun, organized games, but they can be competitive, there's nothing wrong yeah, yeah. with that. They now have a skill set. And if they have the genetic makeup, the mental, fortitude to want to be the next level, because some kids just by the time they get to 17, 18, say, yeah, hey, I love sports. I want to play as an adult, but I don't want to go beyond that. And that's fine, too. You'll know when the kid wants to keep going. And the other part is, here in America, and this is what we say a lot, is if there are schools that you're interested in going to, well, reach out to them. Let them know you're interested. Go to their summer camp. I'd rather a parent spend three hundred to five hundred dollars going to a school summer camp that they want to attend versus seven to ten thousand to be on a travel team, just for the heck of it. And they don't even sometimes they don't even play a lot. They sit on the bench a lot. I'd much rather do it the other way. So now they put themselves in a position to to get noticed by colleges. And if they're good enough at that level, well, then maybe they can play professionally in the States or in Europe or in, you know, South America or wherever their sport would bring them. So there's a model there. I've used it for years and years and you can get kids great exposure, but not burning them out on the sport.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think the physical development is one of those, the athletic development, physical development, whichever you decide to call it. I think I've seen that really close the gap for, for kids over the years, and it was something we realised at the school that I was working at back in the UK, was that we had these kids that were technically, tactically very, very good. But when it went up a level in terms of performance, they couldn't cope physically. Yeah. They weren't able to match the intensity or the speed or the strength of the players that they were coming up against. And And I certainly experienced that in rugby. I found my level that, and I didn't, I don't think I did the work that yeah. I should have done to get there, but I didn't have someone like yourself guiding me at the time, or, or I certainly didn't listen to the right people. Um, yeah, yeah. But that was part of what motivated me into the world of strength and conditioning and athletic development. I thought I want to make a difference in, in that way. So, Definitely. yeah, I think that's, that's an area. I think certainly that parents that aren't from a PE or a sport background, I think that is something that they overlook, is the, yeah. the physical how the physical comes into play to step up a level. Yeah, um, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Some, some great points for people there. Um, I'm just going to load my other, there was another question we had.
2: As well.
1: Yeah. Please. Um, so I think one of the, uh, some of the things I've seen you posting about recently is how we can, how, what are the, you know, these, these big competitions and things, how can we restructure competition in a local community? what opportunities would you look to provide to counter the travel ball scenario? What, what have you done that has worked or what have you seen as good examples that if someone's listening to this and they think, yeah, I, d- I don't want to engage in this travel ball. I-, I want to do something locally for the kids. What, what would you set up and how would you run it?
2: Yep, yep. This is, this is the nuts and bolts right here because we, we picked at the scab, we got people emotional. Now you got to give them a solution because maybe they do want to change now. So this is what I did when I was a head coach of multiple sports, different, different schools. So I always introduced this, um, what I would call a scrimmage model. Yeah. So my teams, I would call up two or three local schools or clubs and say, hey, come on over, Saturday morning, come, no, no charge. Uh, We're not going to even have officials. We're going to teach the kids to officiate themselves. They already know how to do it because kids play pickup games all the time. So we're going to let that happen. So I would bring them in. And then what we would do is we would break the game into different segments. For example, if it's basketball, rather than going full court right off, we might go half court. Well, let's say it's soccer. We might go half the pitch and one team, let's say team A gets the ball for 10 possessions on offense. The team B has to work their defense and we'll see who, how many scores they can get. And then we'll switch. And then we'll do situations where we might say, okay, we're going to have a throw in on the sideline, but three quarters of the field. So they got some space to work with versus a throw in closer, or maybe now we're going to do each team gets 10 corner kicks. And we're yeah. going to see who can. So we're going to manipulate that. And we did the same thing with basketball. So what I would do is get these situations going where the kids loved it because they got to compete in different things. I would put thirty seconds on the clock, and I would say, "Okay, guys, we're up by three. Yes. Your ball. Yeah. Thirty seconds. Ready? Go!" And now they're competing, and they could use their fouls. They could do something to stop the clock, or or whatever, to see if they get themselves back in the game. And yeah. so they learned, they had fun. It gave coaches a chance to kind of work on their system a little bit, but the players loved it. And I would even allow parents to come and watch as long as they were quiet. they could come and watch. <laughs> and then, and then what I would do is I would take my my teams and I would get them in like local leagues, not travel teams, just a league. And it'd usually be like some kind of high school league where, You know, maybe you pay $200 for the whole team, not every kid, just the team pays, you get in and you go once or twice a week and you play a game and it's local, very little gas money. The entry fee is usually a couple dollars to help pay for the gym, the lights and all that. Very inexpensive. And so they got to compete. And those are usually about four weeks. There's maybe the month of June or the month of July. You play, they get good playing in and then they're done. And then there's other things I used to establish with my own programs, my own intramural, these three on three leagues. I would have my younger kids playing three on three and we would buy them like really fluorescent, different colored shirts. So they had fun with that. And, but what was happening, James, the whole time is they're learning, they're getting better. They're having fun. We put the onus on them to be able to call fouls and the ball is out of bounds. We taught them how to problem solve. If you can't figure it out, here's the solution. Maybe they shoot fingers like they or they'll yeah. do rock paper scissors, and that's your solution right there. And so it, it didn't. It avoided conflicts, you know, major conflicts. And so my teens loved it. My parents were finally saying, "Yes, we don't have to travel on a weekend, but yeah, we get to watch our kids play and do stuff." And that was all I wanted. And then they. What happened was when we were done, like the the maybe the four weeks was done, we were done. I said, Go, yeah. go do something else. I don't care. Go play if I'll I'll open the gym every once in a while if you want to come in and shoot foul shots. I'm not teaching you. It's all you. You just do what you want. Yeah. And what it did is when the season, the actual school season started, the kids couldn't wait because they, you
1: know, they didn't have it for a while. They got to go yeah. play
2: something else if they wanted.
1: Yeah. No, I think that, I think that's a great way to do it. I I really like the uh, I use the same thing with the scenarios. Yeah. You know, we used to do stuff like, you know, put if particularly if you've got one side say that's a little bit stronger than another, and yeah. you say well, right, you guys need to, you need you guys have got to come back from a three nil, yeah, 3 nil yeah. behind. And the, it, the way those scenarios just change the level of engagement of the kids, like yep. they're just desperate to, to claw that, that lead away or, or defend it. And I think there's also like, we were talking about earlier on, it's the cycle. You're, you're recreating high pressure situations in a fun environment. So they're learning about the psychological side live in, in the game. Like you can, you can start to pull on that. How did you feel when you had to defend that? you know, oh, my heart rate was was up. And okay, so you would deal it, you're starting to deal with like, those things as well. I think, it, I think it's great. And yeah. when you did it in these blocks of time, I think one of the things that's, that's I know, from speaking to parents here, out in the Middle East and things is, you know, that a lot, there's a similar model out here in that you pay to play. And it's not cheap. And yeah. for us, we've, you know, we've, we've not gone Uh, and really bought into some of this. Partly, be Part of the problem here is you have to train twice a week. You pay for two sessions a week and you have to train two sessions a week. And I said to my wife, you know, the kids don't want to go twice a week to this activity. They want to do this and they want to do that. So I try and fill the gaps a bit like you with doing a whole range of activities um, with them. But I really like this idea of like a four week block where you get together and you play some games and then you give all the families like two or three weeks, maybe four weeks that yep. they don't yep. have to commit to doing that. And you restart it again. So they can be a family. They're still doing PE and sport in between, but they've got these windows of opportunity to compete. I, I really like that um, scrimmage yep. model as you described it. it.
2: And the other thing is if a t- if a, cause I had many of my players, like my daughters, you know, one of them loved track. Uh, the other one liked tennis when they were younger, they did soccer and, you know, they just did a lot of different stuff. And so when I was in even this four week block of stuff, if a child played another sport, and they had an engagement with them, I'm like, go ahead, don't feel bad. You're not, you're yeah. not missing anything. This is just it's if you don't have anything, and you want to come, come. If, yeah. if you can't, and you have another sport, go that way. And I made it very clear to the parents, I don't think enough coaches have parents' meetings and outline their philosophy and their goals. So I used to say to parents, listen, this sport is here because your child wants to play. So if I wanted to coach it and I didn't have any children, I couldn't coach. So it's about you guys. Here's the rules. Here's the standards we'll try to uphold when we're in the season. But off-season, it's your time. I'm going to offer opportunities for improvement. I'm going to offer opportunities to have fun and get some competition in there. It's going to be in small blocks of times. If you can make it, great. If you can't, it will in no way affect your standing in the program when the real season comes around. That alone made parents feel like, oh, thank God, because we want to go on vacation. We're going to go visit family out of town. I'm like, please, I would be disappointed if you didn't do that. Versus, yeah. you know, come and do my thing. So I think when you do that, it lets everybody know you're actually there to make a difference versus just being, you know, a stubborn coach who wants it only their way,
1: you know? Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And I, it's like like you say, the, the pressure that can come from coaches to parents, to the kids, that just isn't an environment that people are going to want to be yeah. part of long-term. And I think the way I definitely agree with what you're saying as well, in terms of sharing the philosophy of the program and, and the parents meetings, I think are definitely an underutilized tool in youth sport and, and for you to get, I think it's getting across those messages, like you say about how we talk to the kids, how we support from the sideline, you know, let them play, let them, let them be, and, and, and not get on their backs too much when, when things, uh, things go wrong. I've, I've yeah. definitely experienced that myself. And <laughs> yeah, you certainly don't come off thinking like, I want to, I want to go back and play for that coach or I yeah. want to go back, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to put myself back in that environment. So yeah. but I yeah. think there's, I think there's some great messages that have come through, um, through there Lee. Um, if we had to summarize it in, in three, points to take home and for for people to apply what would be the the three the three key things to summarize
2: yeah number one don't forget that it's the name of what we're talking about is youth sports not adult driven youth sports so yeah number one make sure that the, the whole dynamics of the youth sporting experience revolves around the child i understand We've got to drive them there. We might have to pay a, you know, a fee to get in or whatever. That's but other than that, make sure it's about them. Number two, give as much sampling as possible that they seem interested in. And the the mistake I think a lot of people or, or they misunderstand me is it's fine if they don't want to play another organized sport. If they just want to spend time water skiing and and skateboarding and you know, ice skating or whatever, you know, or maybe doing gymnastics or martial arts on a non-competitive team. Great. Just do something different that develops your body and your mind and your social engagements differently. Make sure that's really critical. And then number three, I would definitely make sure that the experience, like you want to make sure you're reading your child. If your child is highly competitive and that's what's fun to them, don't take that away from them like get them in the rec leagues or the scrimmage models or get them to go to the park and maybe they can play with some of the older players i did that a lot with my daughters they they a lot of the girls didn't want to play pick up basketball so i'd bring them to the rec center and i'd get them in the game with the guys and they yeah. play against the men because they wanted it they wanted to play so don't be afraid of competition just don't let competition be the only thing they get they have yeah. to get the development And all that. But I think competition is if that's what is driving your child, well, then cultivate the atmosphere where they can do that along with the development, but just make them understand. And this is another part we didn't really talk a lot about, but being competitive and winning, sometimes you got to define winning as having an unbelievable effort all game long, even though you lost the sport or a winning attitude where. Yeah, you got your butt kicked and you got knocked over and you got elbowed in the face, but you never stop being a good sport and competing. Those are things you and I can always control and expect our teams to do well. We can't always control who wins because sometimes it just doesn't go our way. So if they do those three things, I think you're going to have a really healthy athlete that will decide to continue or decide to, you know, retire young and just be an adult that's healthy.
1: Yeah. I think I think there's something you touched on within that that is uh, it is is as valuable in that the free play element yeah. as well. Like oh, it doesn't yeah. have to be. I think that's a really important message for any parents or coaches that listen in. Critical. It doesn't have to be structured, paid for sessions or a training session. There is so much value on in kids going and taking a ball to the court and playing like you say pick up basketball among themselves it doesn't have to have adults there to be beneficial to their development
2: that's it james our talk for two hours could be just on free play and the importance of it and you know that because we (laughs) we actually know through research that we're not the only species that free play is critical You know, we realize animals uh, that love to play and that's a part of their socialization and development. So when kids get the chance to have free play, they own it. They don't own it when they show up to a club practice and the coach is drilling them on everything. They don't own that. They show up and they go through the motions of doing it. Maybe they have a great experience, but they still it's not the same free play. Opens up so many social and mental and emotional and physical roles in decision making that other things can't do. So, you're so right. So, the, the free play is really the formation of everything going into these youth sports.
1: Yeah. Awesome. I would like okay. to ask a question. Of because course. Of yeah, I was, go- I was going to so say. First of it. all, thank you very much. Absolutely. First of, of all, thank great. you very much for the talk. great talk. I'm a
2: uh, a youth department of soccer in Israel, and I would like to ask, just uh, in front of the off-season, what focus you put on the off-season with your athletes? For an example, they did during the the year training programs and, you know, all the um, athletic stuff. They got, like, a a good amount of um, athletic education. What would you put an emphasis on the off-season in order they have like eight weeks uh, from the point they finish until the beginning of the season? Yeah. So, I, I mean, again, with with myself personally with that, once they get in the offseason, we try not to take too much time away from athletic development if they're competitive, like if they're a high school team. Younger kids is different, but if they're a high school-age or older type team, we we focus on the nuts and bolts. We try to get them faster through sprinting. We try to make them laterally quicker by doing lateral speed work and lateral change of direction. And we try to improve their power output by implementing some kind of jump program. Could be a vertical jump under a box. Could be a resisted broad jump where they're learning to develop some kind of peak power type stuff. Keep it very, very focused, very simple. Um, not a ton of volume because at that point in time, I'm just trying to improve a speed quality and a movement quality and keep it pretty simple. That's what we'll do. Then as we get closer, we start to build capacities and things like that. So they're ready for the season, but that's how we would do it. Just keep it really, really simple. Now also, uh, you know, if they want to work on skills, we could give them sports skills like in soccer, you know, maybe some ball, ball handling skills and passing skills and shooting skills you could do, but athletically, if you improve them and keep them healthy, then they don't have to always you know, start from a low point and raise back up, just kind of keep them healthy year round and keep them strong and fast. That's the best way to keep them ready for their season. Great. And with the younger ages, for example, 10, 11, 12, 13, what would you recommend about their program? Even if maybe you're not giving them a program, I would like to know like how yeah. you manage it. Yeah, I encourage them to get in another sport. So go do something different that's fairly active, you know, like I would like them. maybe if they pick up, uh, you know, uh, lacrosse or tennis or basketball is a great one because it has so many change of directions in it. Uh, just do something different like that. Even I'm a big fan of swimming because of what it develops physiologically and physically, uh, joint wise and muscular wise, uh, just have them do stuff like that. Because at that age, the downtime from the, the the main sport is so valuable to them because that way, if they're getting close to being a little bit burnout, a little bit tired, just get them away from it. Let them go do something different. It revitalizes them. It keeps them athletic. It keeps them moving really well. And then they kind of miss the sport. They want to come back to it after a couple months off. Thank you very much. Okay, got it. You got it. Yep, absolutely. Thank you.
1: Awesome. Well, some some great advice coming through there, Lee. It was it was brilliant to have you with us for, just under an hour to uh, to share your wisdom and, and thoughts around how we can make youth sport better. I think there's there's so much. Hopefully, we can do in this this space, and hopefully, if this just gives a few people some ideas around how um, that they can apply some of these ideas and do that for the kids that they're in contact with in their community, then then it's a really positive thing. So thanks very much for giving up your time. And we're going to make sure that this is uh, freely available for people to access and, and we'll share uh, the links and everything to that to, to get into uh, the right hands.
2: Well, thank you, James. This was great. I appreciate you creating the platform to help more uh, parents, coaches and kids. So thank you.
1: No problem at all.
0: Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love your support by leaving a rating or review on your chosen podcast player. You can also find us on social media using at LTAD Network.